The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. See it on the news. See it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. McBride became jealous when he found out his wife was falling in love with Jeremy Scully. And then you have kind of this underlying, she had just found out that she was pregnant and McBride had a vasectomy. So you can kind of do your own math when this happened. And then she had a baby in January of 2009. So, I mean, if you have this kind of consenting relationship, what would trigger it to actually lead to murder? Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting kind of far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And you know what? We are officially in the holiday season. We're talking about getting festive, decorating our places because we're spending so much time at home. And I hope you are decorating yours as well. That's right. I hope you are. Please do. Please do. So we just are kind of <laughs> kind of happy during this sad, cold season. Um, I was at Target yesterday and I tried to get eggnog and they were out. I'm like, people are what? getting in the holiday spirit already. They had like no eggnog left. It's eggnog and toilet paper. Yeah, maybe everybody is kind of preparing for the second lockdown, which might end up being a shortage of different things and Nogs? a shortage. A nog of egg shortage. Nog. A oh, nog can't shortage have can't have it. We know. I know you love a nog, Alexis. It's like my favorite. It's like my favorite drink, but it's not appropriate to drink it for other than the three months a year. It's really supposed to be drank for one month, but I take my liberty <laughs> with that time period. <laughs> You mean like when you go out on a run, you don't just like drink eggnog? Like a like a jug of nog comes with me yeah, on my cemetery like run? No. Yeah. yeah. That no. I mean, that does seem kind of nice though. You Probably know what? My hydro flask. Yeah. If there's any year to do a nog and run, I think that this is the year <laughs> to do it, Lux. I did buy I did buy the rum to go in it. I bought the Kraken rum with the big octopus on the on the mm. label. It's spiced rum that gets really oh. good in nog. And I bought it and I was like, I'll get the nog next. But they didn't have any, but I bought the rum anyway in preparation for you know and now the rum is gone. So. Yeah. <laughs> worse comes to worse, just drink rum the rum on its own, and just fine. swig some milk in your mouth and call it a day. <laughs> yeah, just eat a marshmallow and that's it. <laughs> or whatever. I don't even know what eggnog is made out of. Um, all right, Billy. Well, what day is it today? It's National Metal Day. Yeah. That's probably – Jared would be so excited. Yes. It's National Jared. Metal Day. Hopefully Jared can put some can put some sound effects behind that when I do that. Yeah, ready. Power cord. Metal sound effect in three, two, two, one. <laughs> it's also you know, I, I I did also notice this as well. It's National Sunday Day. And considering that it's on a Wednesday, when we grew up on the East Coast, me and Alexis had Wednesday is Sunday at Carvel because we Mm. love Carvel. And we did have a couple of uh, Carvel experiences when we were out on Long Island working on our show. So I did notice that as well. Mm, I would Mm, love a Sunday. 
I know that mm. that's a good that's I a good collection fudge. of taste. There's nothing better than a hot fudge. Hot fudge and an eggnog, maybe. Oh, fancy eggnog. Jacqueline, crazy. Well, listen to Metallica. So so seductive. Yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. Put on some Metallica. What a day, everybody! Just, just go do that, and you'll have the best day ever. Seriously. Um, All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety, because this could be you. student, you think your teachers are from another planet. When you would see them outside of school at the supermarket or the coffee shop, you would kind of freak out or you just couldn't imagine that they actually had a life outside of the locker line hallways you knew of them and where you were used to seeing them. But teachers do have lives. They go out to dinner, they go to the movies, they go on vacations, and some of them even have secret lives. Today's case takes us back to April 24th of 2008. Bleeding Love by Liana Lewis was the top song on the Billboard chart and movies like Baby Mama, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and Prom Night were in theaters. And the case takes us to the Pacific Northwest, Ferndale, Washington to be exact. And we're going to let our first degree Megan paint the picture of this idyllic place. I was actually born in Bellingham. And I was raised in Ferndale. So from basically the time that I was a baby until I was 15, I grew up in Ferndale. And it's this perfect little small rural town right in the exact heart of the northwest corner of Washington. If you've heard of Bellingham, which I know that comes up in true crime a lot, it's just north of Bellingham. And it's just south of the Canadian border. And it's right up against the water. You've got the mountains, you've got the forest, you've got these beautiful lakes. It's just kind of this perfect little farm town. And within the city of Ferndale is Ferndale High School. So my freshman year of high school was in 2005, and that's when I started at Ferndale High School. I played soccer in the fall, and then I remember all the counselors and stuff were like, you have to do a spring sport. You have to have that on your resume for college. So I felt like I had to do track and field just because... Everyone else was doing it, and I had no desire to do it. I'm not going to sit here and run around a track. Like, I hated running. But the first day that you show up for track, they have you go around to each of the different disciplines in track, and you can kind of try it out. And I remember going around, and all these coaches were, like, super competitive. And they were, like, screaming at people to, like, hurry up. And I was like, I I don't want to do this. And I finally got around to pole vault which had never crossed my mind, but that's where Coach Scully was training. And he was just so chill and so happy and was like, hey, nice to meet you. You know, this is what we do. He has some of the juniors and seniors demonstrate stuff. And I just remember thinking, like, I'm going to do this because this guy is really cool and chill and I don't have to, like, 
run my butt off all day long. <laughs> so I decided to do pole vault basically that day because I was like, he's super nice. He's super chill. Everyone in that pole vault group was just really fun to be around. And I like that kind of atmosphere. 38-year-old Jeremy Scully was the pole vault coach, and Megan immediately liked him. And she's not the only one. He was an extremely popular coach with the kids and his colleagues as well. And according to the Seattle Times, quote, Jeremy Scully was the kind of coach who would recite from memory the height of each of his students cleared in various pole vaulting competitions, and he knew all of their best ever flights over the bar. So this means Jeremy loved the sport, he really cared about his students, and he loved to teach. I know that he had trained in pole vault in college at the University of Oregon, and he was also instructing at Western Washington University, which is down in Bellingham, that he was teaching pole vault. So we had a few people on the high school team that were like super competitive with pole vault, and he was very invested in like trying to help them and get them to be their best. But at the same time, like the younger freshmen, he was just very invested in like having you feel welcome and a part of the sport. He was so happy, like every day. I mean, I'd have an awful day at school and then I'd have to stay for track. And he was just really cool about everything. And he'd ask you about your day. And, you know, there were a few days if you just weren't into doing anything, he was fine with you hanging out. But then days that you actually wanted to work on stuff, he was super encouraging. I know that he really wanted not only you to be a good athlete, but he wanted you to do well in school too. That freshman year, that was like my favorite part of the year was after school track practice because it was just such a nice little community bubble. And I had no idea what was going on in his personal life. He was just this really nice, caring guy and great example, in my opinion, great example of what we should aspire to be. It's common for students to have no idea what's going on in the lives of their teachers. In fact, when I was talking to Megan, we joked about this. We think of them as these subhuman people. Now, of course, as an adult who has friends, I have friends who are teachers who are still drinking and partying and having very active social lives. And I see that it's really a facade that teachers put up for the kids they are teaching. Well, here's a little more about Jeremy Scully. He did have a life. He had a girlfriend of three years named Robin Goldsby, who he actually met on a dating website before their relationship moved forward. And he and Robin liked to go scuba diving, whitewater rafting, and they even went paragliding, even though Scully was afraid of heights. He had lots of friends. He was originally from Pasadena, California. And by the spring of 2008, beyond coaching pole vaults at the high school, Coach Scully was also coaching at Western Washington University. So it's safe to say that a great deal of his life was dedicated to this passion of his. On the afternoon of April 24th, the final bell of the day was sounded and students made their way to their after-school activities, which included track and field practice. But as practice started, someone was noticeably absent, Coach Scully. He hadn't arrived yet, and this was very odd because days prior he told his colleague and fellow coach, Ted Ganger, not only that he intended to be there, as per usual, but he also said he was going to get there early at 2.15 to help out with a few things. So, Now, not only was Coach Scully not early, he was essentially a no-show. I don't remember him ever not being there. He was there every day. He was at every practice. He was at every 
event. He was at every away game, every home game. I mean, he was, and he was always early too. Like we'd walk out and he was like ready to go, had all the equipment ready to go. He was like clockwork. So per Megan and per his colleagues, Coach Scully was not the type to simply just not show up for practice. He had never missed a practice before, and he would definitely never miss one without letting somebody know what was going on, especially after confirming that he'd be there the day before. But practice moved forward, and when Coach Scully still hadn't shown up by the end, Coach Ted Ganger was alarmed. And after practice at the high school, Coach Scully was also supposed to help another coach at the university, which he didn't make it to either. Once the athletic director at the high school heard that Coach Scully didn't show up to practice, he was so worried that he ended up calling the police to request a welfare check on him. So when the police went to Coach Scully's apartment, it was empty, and they ultimately made contact with his girlfriend, Robin. So what Robin said was interesting. So apparently, Scully had told her that that morning he was going to a friend of his who had asked him to come over and help him with some work on his roof. And that friend's name was Ken McBride. So Scully had left his house at 8.40-ish that morning, So the police contacted Ken McBride, and when they spoke to him, he said that Scully told Ken that he'd be there around 10 a.m. But when 10 a.m. came and went, and he was a no-show, Ken figured he found something else to do that day. So Coach Scully was missing, and the police at this point decided to search the route between where Scully lived and where his friends and the McBrides lived. You've got Ferndale, and then south of Ferndale is Bellingham, and south of Bellingham is Alger. But it's probably only a 45-minute drive on, like, a bad day. Searchers traveled on Interstate 5 and near the Lake Samish area. And for your diehard true crime fans out there, if Lake Samish sounds vaguely familiar, that's because it's where Ted Bundy abducted two women from, ultimately killing them in the woods. So Lake Samish, if you look at a map of I-5 and you look at, if you're looking at it, like north to the top, I-5 is kind of off to the right. Lake Samish is off to the left. And then in between where Lake Samish is and the coast or the bay is, is this kind of forested area. And it's very rough, kind of mountainous, very forested you're, you really are kind of in a very heavily populated traffic area, but it is also super remote at the same time. And it's as the police approached this wooded area around Lake Samish that they made a disturbing discovery. They could see Coach Scully's gray 1993 Nissan Sentra on the side of the road. And when police approached the vehicle, they, d- they observed that one of the doors was ajar. When they looked inside the car, they noticed that the key to the car was still in the ignition. All right, so these are pretty chilling signs. But the thing was, there was no signs of foul play in or around the vehicle, or nothing glaring at least. There are no signs of a struggle, no blood, no smell of cleaning products, none of the telltale signs that something sinister had happened. But the abandoned car itself really spoke volumes. Right. It appeared almost as if Scully had stopped the car, opened the door, and walked straight into the woods for unknown reasons. But following the discovery of the car, the Whatcom County Sheriff's Office launched a massive search and rescue effort. I mean, they're thinking, he has to be out here somewhere, right? They were vigilant. There were foot searches. Aerial search by helicopter and search dogs were utilized as well. They even had divers searching for evidence of Coach Scully in Lake Sandwich itself. 
Something the searchers were keeping an eye out for was Coach Scully's blue backpack, which is something he apparently always had with him and something that was not found in his abandoned car. Running parallel with the ground search for Coach Scully was the investigation into Jeremy Scully himself, the man. The police wanted to know everything about him. Was it possible that something was going on with Coach Scully? Investigators spoke to colleagues who had been with him in the days leading up to his disappearance, and no one had anything to report in terms of Coach Scully acting any way but ordinary. Was it possible that Scully could have gone on some sort of impromptu hike? Is that something that he'd do? There was a lot of hiking in this area where the car was discovered. So was it possible that he stopped for a hike and then maybe hurt himself in a way that left him unable to return to his car and unable to flag someone down for help? It's a near weekly occurrence that hikers or climbers go missing in the Cascade Mountain Range. So this is kind of like where people's heads went first. But after speaking to those close to Colch Scully, the general consensus was a resounding no. He wasn't the guy who would blow off work for a hike, but he was the kind of guy who would be a good Samaritan and pull over if somebody was stranded on the side of the road. So this fueled more speculation. Did Coach Scully pull over to help somebody and was he injured in the process, either accidentally or purposefully? Somebody with sinister intentions? Or maybe there had been an exchange that started amicably and then escalated. So the speculation continued, and people were at a loss as to where he could be or what could have happened. And then three days later, on April 27th, there was a break in the case when whispers that a body had been found near Lake Samish blew through the Ferndale community. Hikers had discovered the remains on Blanchard Mountain, approximately eight miles from where they discovered Scully's car. And the body was found just a few hundred yards from a gravel road about a mile from a popular overlook spot. Near the body was a discarded plastic tarp, which had actually caught the attention of these hikers who said they wouldn't have noticed the body otherwise. The hiker reported their discovery to a Whatcom County deputy who actually happened to be in the area searching for Coach Scully. And while the assumption here is that the remains did in fact belong to Jeremy Scully, they didn't confirm that right away. They had to make a conclusive determination. And a visual ID, for whatever reason at this point, was not possible. But there was one thing that was clear to them. This was a homicide. This victim had suffered multiple gunshot wounds. The remains were ultimately identified as Scully's, and they had to use fingerprints. His autopsy revealed that he most probably died from a gunshot wound to the head. And once this info hit the news, there was a palpable shock. The community was crushed and horrified. His students, his colleagues, his friends, his family. Everyone was dumbfounded about how and why this all-American guy ended up murdered in the woods by Lake Samish. Who would do this? And why would they do this? Following her freshman year at Ferndale High School, Megan's family had moved out of state to Arizona. But news of Coach Scully's death made it there too. I remember super randomly, my mom came home from work and was like, do you know Coach Scully? And I was like, my, my track coach? Yeah, he was my pole vault coach. And she goes, well, he, he died. I thought it was a medical condition. I thought it was really odd, you know, because he was a pretty healthy guy. So I maybe assumed it was an accident. I didn't really know. And then it was later on when I found out that he had been killed 
that I was super confused. Like, he was such a nice, optimistic, happy guy to be around. Like, who would want to kill him? After the identification of Jeremy Scully's body, the investigators mobilized. This was their first homicide investigation of the year, and a lot of people were demanding answers. Scully's girlfriend, Robin, spoke publicly, saying that she wouldn't rest until her questions were answered and justice was served. She said, quote, I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to get through just the next few days, not to mention the rest of my life. I've done a lot of crying, trying to make deals with God. Investigators took all available investigative avenues. They searched for evidence connected to the murder in the woods around his body, which ultimately led them to determine that they believe Coach Scully had been shot and killed there in the woods, likely in broad daylight. Meanwhile, detectives were now taking a deep dive into Coach Scully's personal life. And it's here that they started to make progress. In fact, the police publicly released some information about a glaring discovery they had made. And I believe that there was a reason the police spoke to the media about this, and also a very clear reason why the media perpetuated it and clung to it. So it turns out that Coach Jeremy Scully was involved in the swinger lifestyle. He was a member of the adult website adultfriendfinder.com. So adultfriendfinder.com was billed as the world's largest sex and swinger personal community with about 290,000 members in Washington state alone. So on the site, members would connect to those engaged in the swinger lifestyle. They would meet one another. They would invite each other to parties. So the idea here is that the police went public with this information, hoping for tips, wondering if Scully's connection to this lifestyle could be behind his murder. And the media really clung to it for obvious reasons, because this is clickbait. It's very salacious. Behind the scenes, detectives were going through all of Scully's devices, hoping for a break. And law enforcement acknowledged that they were looking into Scully's use of a website for personal ads aimed at sex and swingers, but also said it was too early to say if his death might have something to do with anybody that he met online. Now, the Skagit County Chief Criminal Deputy Will Reichart said it could ultimately prove to be a significant factor or no factor at all. Now, meanwhile, Megan was none the wiser to this information. She had simply heard that Coach Scully had died and knew no other further details. I didn't think about it for quite a few years. And then I ended up going back and actually delving into it and realizing like what actually happened and just the whole web of things that were happening kind of behind the scenes. It was probably three years ago I started getting into like true crime and like different shows and different podcasts. And then somehow like really randomly, I don't know if it was like someone that I knew growing up had posted something, but I actually saw a news article about this Ferndale high school track coach that had been murdered. And I clicked on it and I was like, Holy crap, this is coach Scully. Like, And I started actually reading into it, and I was like, who on earth would want to kill him? And it just baffled me. I think finding out the swinger thing was a bit shocking just because that's a bit out there. But I also know people that have been into that, so I'm not going to, like, sit here and judge. But, yeah, for such a, like, kind, sweet person, it was a bit shocking to see that. 
Okay, so as far as where things were in the investigation, the public knew very little except for the fact that the victim in this case was engaging in an alternative lifestyle at the time of his death. But behind the scenes, investigators were untangling a tangled web looking for the thread that they believed would lead to Coach Scully's killer. Okay, so you have to remember what we told you in the beginning of this episode. When Scully went missing, he was on his way to a friend's house, the home of 34-year-old Ken McBride. So the police questioned Ken several times, and they also questioned Ken's wife, Vanessa. And it turns out that there was a lot more to Jeremy Scully's friendship with this couple. When questioned, Vanessa McBride confessed to the police that she and Scully were having an affair. And you guessed it, Vanessa and Ken McBride were also swingers. Here's what we know about Vanessa and Ken McBride. The couple had actually been together since they were teenagers. Vanessa met Ken when she was just 13 years old. So the high school sweethearts exchanged vows right after they graduated, and by 2008, they had a preteen son. And for the first years of their marriage, she was a stay-at-home mom, but she actually wanted to be a teacher. She was in and out of college, and that's really what she wanted to do, but she never finished, and that was kind of because they couldn't afford it. Ken McBride had difficulty holding down a job, and he was reportedly fired more than 17 times in the early 2000s alone. So their marriage in general was pretty meh, like... Not a lot of fire left, been together since kids. Probably she's had very few sexual partners, if any more than one in in Ken. So it's at this point they have this conversation. They decide to step into the swinger scene. And it's in this swinger lifestyle where the couple actually meets Jeremy Scully at a swingers party in Oregon months earlier. But according to Vanessa, her relationship with Scully had become more than just sex. But this fact alone didn't make Vanessa think her husband of being involved in Scully's murder. But what did make her suspicious was that on 2 p.m., on the day Scully was thought to have been killed, the day he went missing, Ken McBride called her and asked her to pick him up near a trailhead on Old Highway 99 North, within a mile or two of where Scully's Nissan Sentra was found. So this is glaring. And if this wasn't enough of a red flag, Vanessa added that when she arrived home, no work had been done on the roof. There was no sign of Scully anywhere. So this is, it's sort of like this flashing light of like, this is your dude. When the investigators turned to Ken for an explanation and for him to account for where he'd been that day, here's what he claims. He claims that Scully stood him up. So he worked on his resume for a bit and then he looked for jobs. By the way, Ken was unemployed, kind of perpetually unemployed, by the way. Once he was done with that, he opted to go for a hike. Needless to say, the police didn't buy this. There were a million questions. How did Ken get out to that trailhead to begin with? How angry was he about this affair? Even if Ken had killed Scully, how did he get him out to the woods and ultimately kill him? They were looking squarely at Ken now, and they believed they had enough to compel a judge to sign a search warrant which they ultimately did. And from the home, they seized several guns Ken admitted to owning, several boxes of ammo, and a small bag of marijuana. Police seized the items as well as the computers found inside the home. So while the truth about what happened to Scully loomed in purgatory, there was a memorial service for him that was held to help put him to rest. There was a live band and several people shared stories about him. Pole vaulters who had worked with Scully came from all over the country and different universities to attend his memorial. And they even had pole vaulting at the memorial. 
The Western University pole vaulting team put together a collage of pictures of Scully for his family, showing him coaching pole vaulting and hanging out with the team. And there was also a book that people could sign and write stories about Scully that was given to his family. It was a sad, somber day, and it was only made worse by the fact that there was no one to blame for taking his life seemingly so senselessly. Following the warrant being served on the home of the McBrides, the police questioned Ken McBride at least four more times. There were also more searches, and during those searches, the police had a warrant to collect DNA from McBride. They also searched the couple's backyard using metal detectors, using dogs, but they wouldn't elaborate on what they were looking for in media reports. They collected his hair, and outwardly, it seemed as though investigators knew Ken McBride was responsible for Scully's murder, but they were struggling maybe to prove it, to the point where they could actually arrest him. Those following the case closely were expecting an arrest to be imminent, but that didn't happen. In fact, the McBrides made a questionable move. They literally moved out of the state. They moved from Washington to Oregon in the throes of this murder investigation. And mind you, it's at this point, suspicion loomed over Vanessa heavily too. She told the police that she suspected her husband's involvement in this crime. And if that was the case, why would she agree to move with him? It was perplexing to say the least. People were upset, but at this point, they still didn't have enough to arrest Ken McBride in months past. Then in January of 2009, more shocking news. Vanessa had given birth to a baby boy. Now, by this point, Ken McBride was publicly the main suspect, and the rumors ran wild. By now, the information about this love triangle was known by most people familiar with the case. And people began to speculate as to whether this baby could have been Coach Scully's. And beyond that, could that pregnancy have acted as a motive? Now, these rumors inflated when it became known that Ken actually had had a vasectomy and shouldn't have been able to get his wife pregnant. Yes. McBride became jealous when he found out his wife was falling in love with Jeremy Scully. And then you have kind of this underlying, she had just found out that she was pregnant and McBride had a vasectomy. So you can kind of do your own math when this happened. And then she had a baby in January of 2009. So, I mean, if you have this kind of consenting relationship, what would trigger it to actually lead to murder? And I think that that's a pretty good catalyst for that. It just gets into a whole tangled mess. And I think that that more so is what triggered it than necessarily that she had stronger feelings for him. Finally, almost a year after Jeremy Scully had been found shot to death in the woods, Ken McBride was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. And while it was largely a circumstantial case, they had uncovered a ton of information about the love triangle between Scully and the McBrides. And here's what we know. The three of them had met at an Oregon sex party months before Scully's murder. And two weeks before Scully's murder, Scully and the McBrides attended a swingers party in Portland together. And there, witnesses who also attended claimed that Ken McBride was glaring angrily at Scully throughout the duration of the event. After this party, Vanessa apparently asked her husband if she could quote-unquote play with Scully. Ken apparently gave his consent to her, but later expressed concern about the relationship. 
And according to police, it appeared that Ken was okay with Vanessa's relationship with Scully at first, but slowly grew to resent it. From that point, the relationship between Scully and Vanessa McBride escalated. They were spending time talking to each other secretly. They were spending time together when Ken was out of town. They were talking in chat rooms, and they were even discussing possibly having a child together. They were telling each other that they loved each other. And a forensic search of Ken McBride's computer revealed he had become jealous, fearing his wife had fallen for Scully, which she had. He said in one exchange, quote, I know you would really like to know what put me over the edge. It was a look in your eye when you were telling me about your first night with Jeremy Scully. And this email was written about three weeks prior to Scully's body being found. Ken McBride then began spying on Vanessa, reading her archived chat threads between she and Jeremy Scully and lurking in her emails and things like that. And in one of these chats, Vanessa told Scully that her husband, Ken, would become, quote unquote, unglued if Scully interfered with their marriage. Weeks later, police uncovered that Scully and the McBrides had actually made a sex tape together. Police watched said sex tape and noted that Ken McBride was mostly excluded from the activities. Again, this tape was made only weeks before Jeremy Scully was killed. But beyond the tape, there was more evidence. The police did something on the ground where Jeremy Scully's body was found as well. It was real that the sniffer dogs that they used were able to track the scent of Ken McBride's shoes from the area where Jeremy was found to the shore of Lake Samish, where divers recovered personal items belonging to Scully. The dogs also tracked Ken McBride's scent until it almost reached the trailhead, which is exactly where he had Vanessa pick him up on the day Scully disappeared. Then there was more evidence. Back at the home of McBride's, investigators also found a photo of Ken McBride holding a rifle, the exact same type of gun that was used to kill Scully. However, remember, they raided this home. They took all of his guns, but they didn't find the type of gun that was used to kill Scully. But in this picture, he was holding, Ken McBride was holding the type of gun that was used. So what they deduced from this was that he disposed of it in a place where it wasn't found, but it did prove that he owned this type of gun. So this evidence is glaring. So with all of this, the detectives in this case had a solid motive for murder. And in terms of physical evidence, they had that picture and they had found the same ammunition in McBride's Burlington home that was used to kill Jeremy Scully. And while it seems elementary to us listening that Ken is the culprit, We've addressed this several times. It took almost a year for them to arrest Ken McBride on March 11, 2009. Why this was the case is not public knowledge. Ken was charged with the first-degree murder of Jeremy Scully. And following his indictment, people watched and waited to see if Vanessa would be indicted too. People had a lot of questions about her role in all of this. And at a certain point, the detectives stated that they didn't believe Vanessa was involved in Scully's murder. And evidence from their computer suggested that she suspected that her husband was responsible early on. But that being said, if this was the case, why did Vanessa stay with him? Why did she move to Oregon with him? That looks pretty bad for her, right? I don't think she's culpable in it. Everything I've read is she really wasn't involved if she didn't know that it happened. But at the same time, if he was missing, and then all of a sudden a month later, your husband's like, we have to move to Oregon. 
and you find out that he was dead. Oh, that's a tough one. Do I think she was directly involved in his murder? No. I don't think she played a part in that, but I mean, it did take a year to arrest him and she was with him. So that's a tough one. If you picked your husband up from the woods and then found out, you know, however long later that that's where his body was found. I mean, how could you not connect two and two together? One thing we want to say is that as far as Robin Goldsby, who we've mentioned a few times as Jeremy Scully's girlfriend, what I want to make super clear, her involvement in any of this in terms of the swinger lifestyle, it's not clear. It's also not clear whether or not she knew about Scully's relationship with Vanessa, if she didn't know, if she did. But she made comments publicly that made it seem like she wasn't hateful, angry, or defensive. She seems really lovely and she made really compassionate statements. But anyways, that's an aside. So when Ken McBride was charged, he pleaded not guilty. And his attorneys worked to mount a defense because the trial was going to be a big to-do. The prosecution planned to bring 70 witnesses to testify against him. And in April of 2010, while McBride was awaiting trial, he apparently attempted a failed suicide. He stashed away medication he was supposed to be taking and ended up taking it all at once. The case was largely circumstantial and extremely complex. There were thousands of pages of computer data, including instant messages and other computer evidence and evidence of McBride's cell phone use through area cell phone towers. But in a plot twist... McBride abruptly pleaded guilty and accepted a plea deal. And here's why. Right before the trial, the prosecutors introduced a surprise witness in the form of McBride's jail cellmate, 50-year-old Travis Martinez. Now, Martinez came forward and told prosecutors that McBride had actually confessed to him, confessed to killing Scully when they were sharing a cell together. Martinez coming forward was enough to convince McBride that he didn't stand a chance. So he pleaded guilty to second-degree murder with a firearm. And finally, with his plea, Ken McBride would finally provide his version of events. And whether you believe a story or not is your own call, but we don't believe it. According to a statement, the day that Jeremy arrived to help him with his roof, Jeremy got there, but instead of fixing the roof the men decided to go target shooting instead. So Ken had his 9mm pistol, and he gave Jeremy his 22 caliber rifle. And Ken said as they were walking into the woods, the trigger from his handgun got caught on the button of his jacket, and the gun accidentally went off. The bullet hit Scully in the back of the head, but the shot wasn't fatal. Scully was still alive, so Ken picked up the 22 caliber rifle and shot him again. He said he was scared to call 911 because of how it would look because of Jeremy's relationship with his wife. So instead, he shot him multiple times in the head. And then he went and disposed of Scully's body. And following this admission, Ken McBride was only sentenced to 23 years for plotting the murder and killing Jeremy Scully. I mean, I like that he pleaded guilty because he's in prison for what he did. But at the same time, he only did... Was it 23 years? So 23 years is what Coach Scully's life was worth. Like, that's all he's going to spend in jail. I mean, he'll be out by the time he's 60. 
and still has like years to go, which is really quite sad. Jealousy can flip so quickly. You won't even know it. And then all of a sudden one little thing will happen and it'll flip it for someone. And then that jealousy takes over and you, you won't even know that it's coming at you. I don't want to say that that sort of lifestyle is risky because I think if you're surrounded with a community that's into that and you're all consenting, that's great. Even if you're in a community that you trust, there still is an aspect to that that can be risky. I mean, would he have known that this guy was going to murder him? Like, no. But at the same time, how quickly someone's jealousy can flip and just make you a target is quite startling. So yeah, it kind of, it kind of makes you nervous to like get out and meet people and like try new things because you don't ever know what someone else's motives are. Like how would he have known that Ken had the motive to kill him? He probably had no idea. So I think it's just, Keep your guard up, as sad as that sounds. Like, you don't know these people very well. It's kind of a scary story because you never know when someone's going to snap on you. And you might not even be prepared for it. And it'll be over before you know it. It's just supposed to be sex, an alternative lifestyle that can be sustainable for some. But what happens when two individuals who were just supposed to be in it for the sex find a connection, actually start falling in love? What happens when they start to have secret meetings and conversations? What happens when the idea of being apart from each other, even just for a few hours, makes them want to tear their own eyes out? For most, it just gets messy. Heartache, jealousy, fighting, and breakups. But for some, the occasional few, maybe, just maybe, the rainbow at the end of the storm is a new relationship. But for Jeremy Scully, it ended in the worst possible way, with his body being discovered in the woods. Well, a huge thank you to Megan for being our first degree guest for this episode. If you're listening and you have a story that you would like to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Uh, follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group. We are talking true crime all the time. Just search the first degree up at the Facebook search bar and stick around because we're going to kill some time. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not that close. Happy Sunday day. Happy metal day. Bye. Shout out to Jared Monaco for sound design and creating original music for the first degree. Our production team, Caitlin Cleveland, Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Research sources for today's episode includes King 5 News, The Seattle Times, The Bellingham Herald, KIRO-TV, KOMO-TV, Washington State Archives, court documents, and as always, our first-degree guest is always our largest source. Bye.
All right. Well, welcome to yet another episode of Killing Time. Now, Alexis is just in the comfiest little outfit ever. Which that's is right. What are you wearing, Lex? I'm wearing a onesie that's a walrus that Jack and I got matching ones for Halloween. We did. And, and you know, I, I feel like we had this like grand old plan to do a little photo shoot and then maybe go out on the town in them and have a day and then it kind of just never happened no our plan was to like smuggle a bottle of wine to the beach and like be walruses on the beach and take a photo and that just <laughs> fell apart over time <laughs> as the drinks frolic, were flowing frolic around on the beach i was planning on wearing my crocs with mine i had a whole outfit planned but so it just really aborted that i know yeah, but but you guys made some really interesting snacks though we did I mean, we I'm actually we we didn't talk about this, right? Our sna- our snack adventure. No, the snack adventure so. was fantastic. I was watching from afar. I mean, listen, I it, you get me in the kitchen or a grocery store, and I just blank out. I like turn into I, a little poof into nothingness because I don't know what I'm doing. So I was a little bit scared. We planned out these like really cute cute snacks for Halloween, and uh, we ended up killing it. But that's because Alexis knows how to cook. <laughs> It was really good. We had these little mini hot dogs and we wrapped them in um, like Pillsbury croissant biscuit crust and like made them look like mm-hmm. little mummies and put little googly edible googly eyes on them. It was so They were so <laughs> They were so cute. They were so cute. And then you had and the fingers. Little, we had deviled eggs that were uh, – we colored green and orange like pumpkins. Mm-hmm. And then we made pretzels dipped in chocolate that were dyed – food coloring like green with like a black almond that was a fingernail so it looked like little witch's fingers we did good we did pretty good good cocktails i know i i made this cocktail all literally all it was is a sparkling wine with some smushed up berries in it and then i found these little rubber hands at paper source because i really wanted to to decorate my apartment but i waited until halloween afternoon at like 4 p.m and the line to get into target was it had to have been a hundred people long. So I went to paper source and found what they had there, which was little tiny mini rubber finger hands that you put on your fingers. And, mm. and then the cocktail ended up being a, a, a lady in the lakes sunken dead ah. body cocktail. It was really, it was really cute. It really turned itself around. Happy uh, accidents. It was a happy accident. It's like after all the shit was just sitting in my wine glass mm-hmm. for so long, then it really, brought into the whole character of the cocktail and then we watched Um, get out which i've never seen before i can't believe i've never seen get out before great movie it was so good yeah we had a good we had a good halloween for the circumstances we we made the best of it (laughs) how was your halloween billy we never talked about your halloween i walked around my neighborhood and uh which is really really done up for halloween and then just drank myself into a stupor because my Hollywood is usually my, my neighborhood is usually packed, thousands and thousands of people, literally, uh, walking around, and it was just empty. But but the people people like decorated their houses. God bless them. And uh, you know it was just you know no kids were out. There was a few just rowdies out and things. But um, you know what? Hopefully this this will be the last Halloween that is a sad Halloween. 
fingers crossed for that fucking vaccine. Um, okay, but we're before we start our killing time, I wanted to do a little thank you to a gift that was given to us. Billy, did you get your book? I did get my book, yes. Okay, so there is this book called, and I have it with me, it's called Where's the Killer? And this was given to all of us by a friend of a friend. And basically what this book is, and this is going to be such a good gift for any true crime lover for Christmas. So I'm just giving them a free ad, I guess. But um, it's a book full of Where's Waldo things, but each page is a different serial killer and they have them hidden in their little backgrounds. And then there's a little summary about them and stuff. And it's so creative. And it's so really well cute. done. They did such a good job. I really and like they it. Did if a I could special draw, edition. I would do something like that. They did a special edition, and lo and behold, behold, on one of the pages, who's there but us? It's us. I'm not wearing pants. <laughs> per huge. Per huge. But it's really cute. So I wanted to give them a huge shout out. And yeah, it would be such a good gift for anybody that loves true crime that they need like a, you know, something different. Yeah, so, I agree. It was, I was, I loved it. It was so cute. Yeah, very cute. Um, okay, so for this killing time, I took some remaining questions that we had asked in the Ask Us Anything Facebook post that I actually, I'm like, how did I even miss these? Some of these are pretty good. You guys ready? We are ready. Let's do it. Let's dive in. Okay, first question is, if you could have a talk show, who would your first three guests be? Living or dead? Living, I'm guessing. Uh, yeah, living. Okay. Unless you want to like have a like a Ouija board and summon a spirit. Is it like a serious? T- is it a serious talk show or is it like Chelsea Lately? Well, what would your talk show be? That's a good question. My talk show would discuss the complexities of the human condition. <laughs> That's it'll every talk very, show. That's what talk shows are very, about. Is that really every talk show? Is that really what Jimmy Kimmel is doing? No, I don't think so. <laughs> what is Jimmy Kimmel talking about? Uh, he's talking about the latest movie or something like Jimmy that. Kimmel's no, I'm going to get deeper. Just trying to make bad fucking jokes because he's not First funny. of all, Billy, if you want it to be at that the human condition, you have to learn how to say human. <laughs> uh, wow. Are you the one that wrote that bad review on, on Amazon? Because Did you guys? An audible that bad I, review? Because I couldn't. One star. You know, you know, fuck you. Trump is Trump is number one. And plus it's pronounced human, not human. <laughs> that, was, that was the review. <laughs> that's, I mean, wow. that's, 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 that's mean. actually a really good question though. Uh, hmm. Well, your so your, con- or your condition, your talk show, <laughs> would it be a very serious deep dive into the human condition? Is that what no, you're saying? No, it, it Everyone's going to want to go on to that one, Billy. <laughs> I'd rather die. <laughs> Do you know what? Honestly, my three guests would be Jack, Alexis, and Jared. Those oh my would, would god! My I know. That sounds true. <laughs> no, I think I think my guests would be Nicholas Cage because of oh. his elusiveness. Yes, Richard Simmons because no one's seen him in a long time. A lot because of people his elusiveness. <laughs> and then maybe like a very um, polarizing figure, like someone. Maybe like a Howard Stern. Oh, that's a nice one. Yeah. What about you, Jack? 
Well, my show would probably have to do maybe, you know, it could be Jack Tales. It could be what I already do as my talk show on Instagram and I could just get wasted with people. That's what I it would have to be something like that, like riding in cars with comedians, but it's like like drunk history. We're like get drunk with someone and make them read shit wasted. Or like that show where they make them eat hot peppers and talk. So that's what I was, hot ones. I was thinking my, I would like mine to be some kind of a version like hot ones, but it would be, maybe it's, you take a shot every, every question and then you see how Mm -hmm. far you can get before you black out. Um, But my guests, I mean, I'd have to have Larry David because it's just been my life's mission to meet him. Um, And then uh, one would have to be Paul Rudd because I just want to know if he is as incredible as I think he is as a human being. Because, you know, Paul Rudd is like perfection. I think he is. He's so likable. So likable. So likable. I don't know who my third person would be. I just, I'd need it as an, as an excuse to get Larry David on my show, but I don't know if we would want to get wasted. Alexander would be fun too. Jason Alexander. Yeah. You just have me on. It's basically the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Alexis is George Costanza. She she is definitely. You know what? I think I would, I would do Matthew McConaughey. Oh, that's a good one. And have him bring his, his supply. I would actually do Trump. And he's got to sit there and answer freaking questions. And then uh, I would you're need... going to be the journalist that's going to get it out of him. Hell yeah. I'll be the David Frost that in this situation. That sounds awful, Billy. No one wants and, to. And uh, people would tune in, though. People would, would tune they? in. <laughs> I think everybody's tired <laughs> of that TV show right because, now. Because either, either, listen, if it was tomorrow, I think people would tune in. And then the uh, next, last one would be uh, Johnny Marr of the Smiths. Hmm. Nice obscure cool. one to go over everyone's heads, <laughs> right on brand for you. <laughs> I'm like, is he alive? He is alive. Yeah. Oh, maybe I was thinking about the Ramones. Okay. Next. Do that question. over a holiday weekend or something, Billy, so your ratings don't go down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> I kind of wonder what day, uh, what kind of day at work you two had, because I feel like something, some shit probably went down. <laughs> no, today was actually pretty good. Because no, I, I, I bought, I bought lunch today. Oh, it was lovely. Okay. He bought me lunch. That was nice. Mm, he was like, you, I can tell. He's like, I can tell you don't feel good today. I'm like, I feel fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the right thing to say to a woman. Like, yeah, I can tell you, you look. You look. You don't. You don't feel good. I'm like, why? I feel I great. <laughs> I'm like, it's I got a, seven and a half hours of sleep last night. <laughs> it's always a. Uh, you look tired, or you look sick. It's unless somebody says they're sick, Billy, in the future, it's probably not a good idea to be like, I can tell you, you know what? <laughs> Maybe it's like some kind of like subliminal messaging. He's trying to implant a thought or a feeling into your head. Yeah. That's she's just like, I do. True. Yeah. And then I, then I sell her Tylenol. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At a really high markup, like a $10. Yeah. No, that's my thing. Was that's, how I do, that's how I make my money. Today. And when, on Mondays, I'm like quiet and hyper-focused and that's what that was, Billy. Yeah, she is. Hmm. Okay. I'm just checking up as your family therapist just to make sure, you know? I really appreciate that. You need to make sure okay. the family family unit stays intact. This is important it's for intact Because it affects me at the end of the day, you know? That's yes. right. Um, You're Chris okay, Jenner. Next. You're the, our Chris Jenner. Chris. Just pulling the springs yes. from over I there. I know. Let, 
Listen, I might not always be front and center, but I am always watching and I'm always feeling. I also, Alexis and I have this strange connection where I can just, I can feel her energy from very far away. So I always know what's happening, even if we're not talking. She literally, I'll be like, hey, she'll not bring something up that everybody else is bringing up. And I'll be like, hey, I really appreciate that you didn't bring that up. She's like, I knew you didn't want me to bring that up. And I was like, how did you know? I just knew. <laughs> and it's like, so I, it's the thing opposite of what, of what most people would want. But she knows yeah, I don't and, want it. And we also never spoke of said thing. I just knew. <laughs> I'm like in your brain at all, at all times. She always knows always. what I'm thinking. Always knowing what's going on. Chris Jenner. Lucifer herself. <laughs> you know me. Okay. Um, I think we only actually have time for a question or two more. Um, okay. Do you ever talk to yourself? Like, are you the type of people that if you have an important meeting or an interview that you'll go over things aloud? Like look in the mirror and like practice your conversations. No, but like I go over hypothetical situations in my head and I like if I'm spiraling about my personal life or something and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I would say this if that happened. And then I'll say that in just the randomest moments when I'm like thinking about <laughs> Like you'll say shit. it out loud? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To see how it <laughs> <Okay>. sounds. <laughs> like I'd show them so, with this comeback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, so you do talk to yourself. Yeah, but it's not a lot. And I talk to myself, like when I'm walking to the cemetery to go on my runs, and if someone's mm. staring, I'll be like, the fuck you looking at? Like, I say <laughs> stuff like that to myself, even though people mm. can't hear me. Like, but not like a full-on conversation, unless it's a hypothetical situation that you're going to really have the upper hand over a possible suitor. Yeah, or if I hurt myself, I'll like be like, say words. <laughs> what about you, Billy? <laughs> Yeah, I do that. Yeah, not necessarily in preparation for something, but just sort of just either to get myself back on track or to, uh, uh, you know, just like get get it the fuck together, that kind of thing. Looking okay. at the, looking in the mirror, that, that 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 type of thing. I will do that. Yeah. Do you, Jack? The only time that I do is if I am like prepping for a, a really important interview, like when we were doing when we did Good Morning America. And I knew the question that I was going to be asked. I would like prep my answer if I have to get out in like a certain amount of time or if I have to say a very specific thing. Well, that's good for Good Morning America, actually, because Good Morning America is like a like a machine gun. You know, it's just yeah. yeah. And I remember I remember Michael Strahan was like, this started with a conversation in a diner. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's what he said. It did he? I don't know. I'm like, well, it didn't, but whatever. <laughs> That's but totally the, what he said. <laughs> the weird part about Good Morning America, too, is the way that they're doing it during COVID is through Zoom. But the way that they have you set up, you don't even see them. So when mm-hmm. you watch it on TV, it looks like we're having a conversation with them, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, I didn't even see a video of what they looked like. I was just looking at my own face. And you just hear the audio, but that's messed up. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I hope. And then I ended up talking over one of them accidentally because I couldn't see, like, you know, their face the to cues. see if they're going to start talking mm-hmm. soon. Yeah. Um, it's really weird. And then it goes by so fast that you're just like, ah. yeah. yeah, but that's, uh, that's the only time that I can ever really remember talking aloud to myself, mm-hmm. but you know, all right, well, uh, we got through two questions, so there are many more, but I think that we've killed enough time. I think we've killed enough Call time. It. That is 
Time of death is 15.35. Beep, beep. Beep. Do you want to beep, Billy? I said beep. Beep. 